0: Hello, and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Ben Roberts, Investment Director from Tilney's Manchester office, and I'm today talking with Chris Godding, our Chief Investment Officer, and Ben Seeger scott Head of Multi-Asset Funds. A couple of subjects to cover today. One will be the significant moves in the oil price recently. What does that mean for uh, that sector of the market and our internal funds and thinking? Um, Also, cover a little bit on inflation, and also the outlook for equity markets as well. Uh, we're recording the podcast from our homes today but before we begin here is some important information.
1: Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice.
0: So, turning first to Ben, we've seen some truly shocking moves in the oil price in the last couple of weeks. Can you explain what's happened and what it means for the outlook?
1: Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. So um, I, I think there were a lot of headlines around oil, how in the US it, it turned negative. Uh, oil has obviously been under pressure quite a lot recently. It's fallen from where it used to be in the sort of 60, 70, 80 dollars a barrel. It dropped to sort of mid range. But what what we did see in, in the last couple of weeks is some truly like shocking pricing. And it's important to highlight that the, the oil price is not always entirely straightforward. And it t- talks about uh, contract pricing. So unlike equities, you just buy an equity and it's pretty much the same as every other equity it exists electronically and lasts in perpetuity. That's not the case with oil. Oil is a commodity. So you don't just buy generally a barrel of oil. You buy a contract to have some delivered. So, you tend to have this this, uh, this series of forward contracts. So, you could have oil to be delivered next month or the month after, or you could buy it for delivery in 2025 or 2030. So, what happened and the news reports highlighted that the oil price actually fell at one point, it got as much as minus $40 a barrel, i.e. you were being paid $40 a barrel to take this stuff off, off the traders' hands. What that actually related to, and it was a a fairly technical element, that related to oil to be delivered in May. And what happens with these contracts, the reason it it was actually Monday, Monday the 20th of April, you saw this very sharp move. The price fell from about $20 down to to minus $40. But that was because on the Monday was the day before the contract expired on the Tuesday. So on Tuesday the 21st, if you had that contract, you needed to take delivery of however much uh, oil... That you'd purchased and the problem you have in the us at the moment because there's a huge amount of supply not very much demand a lot of this stuff is just building up and there's some concern that storage facilities in the us might literally run out of space um obviously that's a big problem and you can see as as people tried to get rid of it this pushed uh, the oil price that much lower um most of the rest of the curve hadn't moved a huge amount so if you look at prices for delivery in June, July, August, and so on, they, they held around $20 a barrel. So it's not to say that the price of oil fell to, to minus 40, the sort of prevailing price. It was just that contract. I think the the sort of uh, metaphor that, that we've been using a lot is it's like the bread rolls in the bakery. At the end of the day, you have to discount them quite heavily to get rid of them. The difference is with oil, you can't just pour it down the drain if you can't get rid of it because it, it's oil. So you have to discount it to a point where where people take this off your hands. So it's important to highlight that the oil price itself was relatively unmoved. In fact, if you could take that oil in May and hold it to June, you could have made $60 a barrel if you'd have bought it at minus 40 uh, and managed to sell it on uh, in June at $20 a barrel. The problem is, to take advantage of that, you probably needed a tanker somewhere off the coast of the US because you'd physically have to take it uh, and store it for a month. So it was somewhat technical in nature. It was isolated to the US. The rest of the world, particularly in the UK, we look at Brent crude. Um, that you're not required to take physical delivery. You can uh, you can settle it with cash, and it doesn't have the same uh, restrictions in terms of US storage. So that was relatively uh, relatively unmoved. Um, in terms of whether it's likely to happen again, all of these technical elements are still in play. So particularly some of the funds that invest through oil could potentially put some uh, pressure on the June contract. But it is important to highlight this is more around the technical aspects of the individual contract. It's not the oil price over overall. Um, and, and I think some people have said, what, what does it mean for, for our investment view that the oil price is turning negative? Well, it, it, it's worth highlighting, this is a consequence of broader events. It's not uh, a trigger for other events. So, I think What it does reflect is the severe economic uh, backdrop, the fact that you have this huge supply-demand imbalance, as demand has fallen off a cliff. At the same time, the the key oil producers, OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the US, fail to agree these supply cuts. Um, That's having a a broader impact, and I think that's the element to, to focus a little bit more on, rather than the oil price itself. So the oil price is somewhat technical in nature, but that doesn't mean that the broad oil uh, environment doesn't have an impact.
0: Thanks, Ben. So in light of that, uh, what views are you expressing in the centrally managed portfolios and how are you doing that?
1: So uh, I think it, it, it's firstly important just to, to re-highlight. I'm sure people on the call are already familiar. But just the way that we operate these portfolios, we have a carefully design framework that's designed to work uh, at a core, throughout different market conditions, we start with a sort of str- core strategic base. There, we blend different asset classes to meet an expected level of, of risk and return. So, higher risk clients would tend to have more in equity. Lower risk clients, less in equity, more in areas uh, areas such as uh, bonds and, and alternative asset classes. And we take that framework, and we populate that with uh, a number of core active managers where we have high conviction. And generally, these managers favor investing in high quality companies. They're less susceptible to aggressive market movement. Instead, they make good steady returns by having a good income stream, a steady income stream uh, that gives rise to, to strong earnings growth that compounds up over time. And that's the basis. And that tends to work through most market cycles. What we then do is we have a tactical overlay where we try and move infrequently, um, but take advantage of potential opportunities that we see in the market, or perhaps move them parts of the portfolio in response to particular events. So that's the bit I'm really talking about here the changes that we tend to make rather than the core than that tends to be relatively enduring. Um, examples that we've done historically, if you cast your mind all the way back to the start of 2019, it seems a, a, a long time ago now, but if you Just briefly for context, throughout the the final quarter of 2018, markets actually fell quite heavily. The Fed had over-tightened interest rates and other factors combined. That left markets looking cheap at the start of uh, of 2019. So, there we implemented just an overweight to UK equities. We increased the equity weight uh, across the board, and we ran that through till about the middle of the year. And then we took took that tactical trade off. That's the sort of thing that, that we tend to do. As we look at the environment now, the core portfolio is doing exactly as we intended. In terms of the tactical trade we are, have on at the moment, we've increased our gold allocation uh, across all of the portfolios. That's for several reasons. I think what we have seen historically, gold tends to act as a good store of value, particularly when you have uh, central bank's flooding the market with liquidity. Any time you have central banks printing money, effectively, that debases that currency. It pushes down that that, that value of that currency. Um, It can be difficult to measure, because obviously, one currency is typically measured against another currency. And if all the different currencies are printing money, it can create a muddy picture. But against that, you have gold. Gold, you can't rapidly increase the supply in the same way that you can with paper money. I mean, that's part of the reason back in the day that you had the gold standard, and it was then then abandoned. So gold can act as a store of value, in particular, as we saw post-global financial crisis, when central banks were, were printing money, then gold picked up uh, significant inflows. And we think that could happen again, now that QE, uh, that money printing is back in effect. The other advantage it has, it can offer good downside protection. So if you do see these shocks in the market, other traditional safe havens such as government bonds, it's difficult difficult for those to fall much uh, or for, for those to rise much further. The yields that determine how much they can move are looking pretty stretched. Against that, you could easily see if there are any wobbles from here, gold picking up a bit as well. And given that low correlation, it really can deliver in the portfolios, I think.
0: Okay. Thanks, Ben. So it's interesting you've added gold there, which is sometimes also viewed as an inflation hedge. Um, On that subject, perhaps we can uh, flip over to Chris uh, for his views on inflation and also your view of the wider equity markets generally at this point in time.
2: Yeah, thanks, Ben. Yeah, Inflation's a a tough one because um, you you have um, a number of different dynamics going on markets. Investors tend to be pretty poor at forecasting inflation, so we tend not to use the implied inflation rates in the market as a guide. you have to, especially in the current situation, you have to think slightly out of the box. Um, in the U.S., the two biggest components of inflation are healthcare costs um, and uh, shelter, i.e., rent and the cost of living, uh, buying a house. Um, and you know, given the impact on the consumer, um, the the shelter component um, is likely to stay pretty muted over the next eighteen months or so. Um, and given and what we've seen recently in, in the terms of healthcare is that prices have actually moved quite significantly lower. Um, now healthcare, given what we've seen over the last couple of months, is likely to see a lot more investment and um, possibly higher inflation over the long term. So that is one element that, that could give us more of an inflation impulse. The, but I think overriding all of that is essentially the excess output gap or the output gap in the economy, the lack of employment, which is going to keep pricing power pretty uh, pretty low and under pressure. And you know, it, it's you know, it, it, until we reach that full capacity once again and companies can start raising prices or wages start to reflect a tighter labor market, uh, you know, we have to remember we've got over 20 million Americans unemployed in the last month. Um, that that's going to take some time. So for us, inflation is not an immediate concern. Um, you have to as Ben as Ben alluded to, you have to take into account that we have seen an extraordinary amount of government and uh, central bank activity. Um, with close to $11 trillion injected into the global economy. And the global economy is essentially roughly $80 trillion a year. Um, So you've had an injection of liquidity. It was equivalent to four four times the size of the UK economy. And and that is likely to lead to some kind of excess in uh, in the system at, at some point. Um, we believe a lot of that excess will be absorbed by the real economy uh, to make up the gap that has been caused by the slowdown as a result of COVID-19. But um, you know, th- this excess liquidity will eventually flow through to-, to stimulate and perhaps at some point overstimulate the economy so that we get some kind of inflation impulse. And as Ben said, that's largely why we own gold.
0: And uh, do you have a wider view on the equity markets at the moment, Chris?
2: Yeah. So, the wider view on the equity markets is you know, um, what we're looking at is earnings and the, the adjustment to earnings. We've seen some pretty material downgrades to earnings this year, as you can imagine. Um, just to give you some context on that, the US earnings. Uh, from the beginning of this year, we've seen a revision of 24% down um, the UK, 32% down. Uh, we've seen less of an impact in Asia Pacific, some region of 13%. But I think the important thing here is that we are getting some clarity on the depth of the revisions so or the correction in earnings power. And from that, we can start to form a view on the outlook for 2021, which is probably more relevant given that that you know that is the kind of those numbers are numbers we're going to be valuing equities on because equities are a long duration asset. The other approach we've taken, given that we have very little visibility on earnings in the, the mist is still pretty difficult to see through. Uh, we're using this the uh, the sort of traditional value manager's approach to equities in terms of cyclically adjusted PEs. Uh, the famous Schiller uh, Cape ratio, um, Cape uh, and, and Price the Book. Now, Price the Book is essentially the uh, multiple of the company's assets. Uh, so, you've got some real tangible assets there supporting the equity price, and it tends to give you a floor, much better flaw in equity. So, on that basis, now equities currently are trading around fair value over, overall, but on a regional basis, we think that there are some really significant outliers with the UK, Eurozone, Japan, Australia, Hong Kong, all looking very cheap using that CAPE ratio. And um, when you look at price to book, uh, Hong Kong once again, uh, and then also Germany and Japan. So overall, we're starting to get a clearer picture of the earnings growth uh, for 2021. Um, based on that and assuming that some of this excess liquidity flows through to higher valuations um, because it has done in the past, um, we are we are sort of essentially uh, looking at 20% upside in the MSCI world between now and the end of 2021.
0: Thank you. And if we just jump back to you, Ben, in terms of regions, uh, equity markets that look attractive, have you been adding to any regions in the in the centrally managed portfolios recently, or is there any that look particularly good value in the current circumstances?
1: Yeah, um, I, I think as we look at our at our retail split it looks fairly balanced overall. Chris has sort of mentioned that the valuation metrics that that we look at, uh, and, and going into this year, the UK was already looking quite cheap, uh, and obviously now looks looks that much cheaper. Uh, but against that, I think you have to account for cheaper valuations, but also that there's been some hits. To, to the earnings earnings outlook. So overall, I think the regional balance uh, is is actually quite quite finely balanced. All things considered, those regions, particularly like the US, that uh, have been a little bit more robust, um, their valuations are that, uh, that a little bit higher. That's reflecting that regions that are a bit more challenged, particularly you know the UK and uh, and Europe. Um, a few more more headwinds, but their valuations are that much cheaper, so reflecting that too. So on balance, I don't think that, there is, that there's a significant difference between the regions at the moment. I think what is more important stylistically, um, just talking to, to the active managers that we use, again, they tend to invest in companies with, with solid balance sheets. So our core managers have actually had a relatively positive, uh, or relatively positive uh, experience so far, mitigating uh, a little bit on the downside. And actually, they they see uh, plenty of opportunities, so they're relatively confident. They aren't investing in those companies that came into this crisis over leveraged and looking particularly vulnerable. Um, and I think when you have uh, movements like this, it's potentially the opportunity uh, for the, for those those managers to to make uh, money on a long term patient view. You see plenty of opportunities cropping up. So a combination of a balance on, on the regional basis but also looking to, to those high conviction active managers that can actually uh, put money to work in these sorts of markets and really re- redeploy capital uh, into much better productive uses for long term patient investors. I think we all, all should be.
0: Well, thanks to you both for your insights and comments today. Um, we'll be back again soon with a new episode. Uh, if you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks for listening.